Well, normally I'm moved and excited by the songs, or particularly the song right before I get up to preach, to, to get up here, to run up here and preach. And every once in a while you sing a song like that and you're like, could somebody else go up there this morning? I feel unworthy. Um, what a precious truth, the holiness of our God, Amen. Well, as you know, we finished up First Peter a few weeks back, and I told you that I wanted to jump right into Second Peter, seeing we're in the neighborhood, and uh, why not knock off that book as well while we're there? But I have had time to think, and you know what happens when I have time to think, right? Um, I was thinking about interjecting a little mini-series in between First and Second Peter, that in some ways related to what we've been learning about in 1 Peter, which is really a lot about suffering. And so the Lord brought to my mind the book of Lamentations, which is, uh, I think, an underrated book in the Old Testament. It doesn't get a lot of airtime. Uh, we don't spend a whole lot of time in the Old Testament here on Sunday mornings, at least, and I thought this would be a worthy endeavor for us to uh, consider that uh, very unique um, in some ways, even strange book. Uh, what is it in the Bible for? And I think it'll fit well uh, as a as an interlude, if you will, between First and Second Peter. So I'd like to start that next Sunday and uh, do that for about six weeks. I think is what it'll take us to do. So this morning, I just want to share with you a message that's on my heart uh, as a result of having gone to the Shepherds Conference a week ago. As you know, uh, our pastoral staff and 10 other men from our church had the privilege of uh, going out to Sun Valley, California to Grace Community Church where John MacArthur has faithfully pastored for over 50 years and they host an annual church, uh, annual gathering for church leaders. And uh, the theme of this year's conference was shepherding the remnant based on Jeremiah 23 verses 2 and 3 where God says this, that I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the land where I have banished them and caused them to return to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will shepherd them, for they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be left unattended. And all the, the messages that were preached uh, at the Shepherds Conference this year focused on our responsibility as, as shepherds to, to feed and protect and care for God's faithful remnant, that small group of people that God has sovereignly chosen out of the billions who have lived and died throughout history, the, the church, uh, Christ's bride. Uh, we are called to care for them and to shepherd them, especially in light of the growing opposition and hostility from the world and the growing apostasy within the church itself. And on the welcome page of the conference guide that we were given, there was a brief letter from John MacArthur which said the following. He said, as modern society grows increasingly dark, the faithful remnant of God's people must boldly stand in allegiance to Christ. That courage begins with pastors and elders who will lead their flocks with clarity and conviction. Our prayer is that this conference will encourage and equip you to that end, that each message, seminar, and providential conversation will strengthen your heart and mind in the truth you love and have been called to proclaim. And so, understandably, uh, that conference was very sobering, uh, humbling. Uh, I'm always um, overwhelmed with both, I guess, gratitude uh, and a sense of unworthiness uh, to have been called to this role as a pastor of a portion of God's flock that he's entrusted to my care along with the other pastors and elders here at Lakeside Bible Church. And so, I take those conferences very seriously because I know they're gifts from the Lord, they're gifts from you uh, to let us get away and to be encouraged and challenged and preached to, 
uh, because we're typically the ones preaching to you, right? We need to get preachers, we need to get preached at uh, as well. And so um, it was a great conference and a great opportunity to be reminded and refreshed and revived and refocused on my responsibility, in particular as a pastor. And as I was processing all this this past week, uh, I was interrupted, in a way, by this inundation of sad texts about evangelical pastors and professors and ministry leaders who are confusing and compromising the truth of God's Word in regards to issues that, that are crystal clear in Scripture, specifically that, that women shouldn't be pastors and homosexuality is sin, things that weren't debated really for centuries because the Scripture is not silent on these things. Um, God didn't stutter when he said what he, when he said whatever he said about these things, he said it very loud and clear. One of the most well-known pastors in our country whose church has been a model for, for thousands of churches around the world said that he changed his views on women being pastors and now believes the talents and and spiritual gifts of millions of women are being wasted because the church won't ordain them as pastors, and so he wants to help them get ordained so they can serve and glorify God with the talents and gifts that they were given by God. Again, the way these things are pitched sound good on some level, don't they? Sounds charitable, sounds gracious, it sounds kind, it sounds equitable which most false teaching comes across that way. Another popular megachurch pastor hypocritically scolded, and this is a quote, bozo pastors, that's what he referred to them as, who take people's churches away from them unnecessarily by making sweeping changes without leading and discipling their people, which... There is truth in that, that if, if we felt the need to make some big cultural shift or change in the life of our church, I shouldn't just get up here one Sunday and say, this is what we're going to do from now on, and you're like, whoa, I guess I can't come to this church anymore because I don't believe that or I'm not going in that direction or whatever, as opposed to just bringing people along, hey, let's do a series, let's talk about this, let's pray about this, let's move slowly through this process, right? I get that where he's coming from. However, the context of this comment on bozo pastors was when he was pushing his people, his church, to accept and affirm gay people as fellow believers who, in his own opinion, have a kind of faith that dwarfs his own faith. Another Bible teacher whose ministry I've benefited from greatly from in the past was speaking to a group of single young people, and it seems like the hot topic these days to address when you're, you know, on a college campus um, is human sexuality. I was going to say biblical sexuality, but typically what comes out of these guys' mouth is not biblical. It's just about human sexuality, but let's, let's tackle that subject. Let's be real. Let's be vulnerable. Let's be transparent. Let's be gritty and edgy. And so he was addressing the subject of sexuality with these single young people, and at the end of his message, this is what he said, quote, in Messiah Jesus, there is no male, no female, no slave, no free, no Jew, no non-Jew, no gay, no straight, just beautiful human beings being made, beings made in the image of God who are deeply flawed and who all need God's grace. See, there's part of that that we would agree with, Right? We would say, yeah, we we are all flawed people who need God's grace. Amen to that. But don't add things to Scripture to include categories that God never intended to be included in that. A professor from the once conservative seminary where that Bible teacher I just quoted graduated from openly admits that he's attracted to the same sex but has chosen a celibate lifestyle. 
which by the way is the new cool. It's the new, that, that's the way to, uh, I guess that's, that's the, you know, to, to, to let's, let's exalt that person who is vulnerable enough to admit that he struggles with same-sex attraction, but he's chosen to be celibate, and so he's honoring God in that. And so it's almost like he's exemplary, uh, he's an example for all of us to follow, you know, follow him as he follows Christ, who wasn't married, who was celibate, and that's just how this thing goes. And so there's part of it that's like, okay, that sounds biblical, until he went on to justify his sexual orientation by saying that heterosexual sex, even within the bonds of a Christian marriage between a husband and a wife, is abnormal and sinful and in need of forgiveness because it involves consenting to our sexual desires rather than mortifying them, as if there was something inherently sinful about the God-given sexual desire he put in us, men for women, women for men, right? It's very natural, very normal. But if that's not you, you want to just make it all bad. And so he said, it doesn't surprise surprise you now that this is what he said, kind of to lead off his discussion, his his message, uh, his talk, if you will. He said, a lot of what I find in queer theory is not something I feel the need to oppose as a Christian. Well, well, of course you don't feel like you need to oppose it because you're trying to straddle that fence, right, and claim both sides. I think Mark Dever summed it up well when he said the following in regards to the qualifications of pastors and elders. He said, quote, an elder must model for the congregation both a strength and a willingness to live a countercultural lifestyle in areas where Christ and culture conflict. If, as an elder, a man caves in to the conforming pressures of the culture on well-defined biblical issues, his example and teaching will eventually lead the church to look more like the world, end quote. And I think you would agree with me, that's the problem in the church today. The church is looking more and more like the world, that there's just this blurriness between who's a part of the body of Christ and who's not. And, and, and I, again, well-intended pastors and ministry leaders are saying, hey, let's, let's, let's be gracious, let's be complementarian here, or I, not, not getting confused with the woman's issue, but let's be egalitarian, let's, let's, let's acknowledge that there's issues out there in the world, you know, about the equality of women and about homosexuality, and so let's, let's accommodate that as best we can and not push back against that or then people won't, won't, they won't want to come to Christ, and so we need to, in some ways, accommodate that so that they'll consider Christ as an option. Well, Shepherd's Conference, on one hand, these texts that I received this week, in combination with and in contrast to right these two things, Shepherd's Conference and Shepherd's Compromising, all over the place, it seems, reminded me of my primary mandate as a pastor to teach sound doctrine. You need to know sound doctrine. I need to know sound doctrine. We need to know sound doctrine. I was encouraged recently, a couple weeks ago, a a grateful mom here at, at Lakeside texted me and said, hey, just want you to know how grateful I am that our child has sat under sound doctrine, sound teaching for pretty much their entire life. Now they're in college. And she was talking about how there was a conversation that their kid was a part of and was able to clearly see that these so-called Christians that were having this conversation uh, were talking about things that were very unbiblical and didn't line up with scripture. And she was able to graciously but accurately point out from the scriptures where there was error being believed and, 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 and talked about. And, and uh, she, said, she said, I'm just so grateful that they were able to see that and, and respond to that um, because they've been well taught all these years. And so it really comes down to this, this whole subject of sound doctrine, which is used over, that phrase is used over and over all throughout 
the, the New Testament, but the most concentrated use of that phrase, sound doctrine, is found in the pastoral epistles. And I'm referring to First and Second Timothy and Titus. And I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn there with me. First Timothy chapter 1 would be a good starting point. But these three letters were written by Paul to two of his young disciples who he had trained and commissioned to be pastors. Timothy uh, was pastoring the church in Ephesus at the time. Titus was overseeing churches on the island of Crete. And so these letters really serve as a comprehensive shepherding manual in which Paul poured out his heart for pastoral ministry and, and provided them careful instruction on how to lead and build a church. In fact, if you've been at Lakeside for, I guess, 15 plus years, you may remember these were three of the first books we ever went through back in the early 2000s um, because I just thought, number one, I'm only going to be a young pastor once and I wanted to hear these instructions from Paul as if I was a young Timothy or Titus, but I also knew that, that this would really establish a strong um, theology of the church, uh, would get our ecclesiology right and straight from the very beginning. We have a strong foundation on which to build uh, this church. And so we went through First and Second Timothy and Titus. It was one of my favorite series we've ever done together. But one of the recurring themes that just pops out just from a simple reading through of the pastoral epistles is, is the importance of preaching and teaching sound doctrine. And so before we take a closer look here at this theme in these three letters, let me just give you a basic working definition of sound doctrine, okay? So let's just break it down. Number, first of all, let's talk about sound. Hugieno is, is the Greek word here. Um, it means correct or orthodox or healthy, wholesome. It's that which produces spiritual life, uh, growth, and health. This is a term from which we derive our English word hygiene, which we know what that means, right? Something that's clean, something that's safe, something that's nourishing to the soul. So that's the word sound. And then the word doctrine, didascalia in the Greek, is simply the word for teaching. And specifically, teaching the truths and principles taught in the Bible, the, the content of God's word. The, the word doctrine refers to basically biblical instruction. Now, the opposite of sound doctrine is, of course, false doctrine, or, as Paul referred to it, strange doctrine. So you've got sound doctrine, and you've got strange doctrine, heterodiscalia. It's a word that, it seems, Paul coined to describe teaching that was different from what Christ and the apostles taught. And so if it sounds strange to your ears... If your ears have been well-trained, sitting under sound doctrine, uh, it probably is strange. It's probably not sound. And again, strange or false doctrine is teaching that distorts or misrepresents the truth of God's word. It's error, it's deception, it's lies, it's, it's heresy. And it's dangerous stuff that's deadly to your soul. It spreads, like, it spreads like gangrene in the body of Christ and creates all sorts of health problems. And so with that definition of sound doctrine in mind, let's do a brief survey here this morning. I just want to just look quickly at the many ways and times that sound doctrine is used in the pastoral epistles. And I want you to see what Paul had to say about the significance of sound doctrine in the life of the church, and in, and in your life uh, as a believer. And so I've just organized Paul's teaching regarding sound doctrine under the following three headings. headings. Number one, the, the jeopardy of sound doctrine, the urgency of sound doctrine, and the beauty of sound doctrine. So let's look first of all at the jeopardy of sound doctrine. In other words, sound doctrine is in jeopardy. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 3, right out of the gate, Paul says this to Timothy. As I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach, what? Strange doctrines. 
nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to what? Sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which, with which I have been entrusted. And then verses 12 through 17 are kind of parenthetical, parenthetical Paul is just talking about how grateful he is that God has called him to be a minister, even though he was the worst of sinners, but proving that if God could save Paul, if God could save me, he can save anybody. Verse 18, he goes back to his original command. He says, this command, which was to remain on at Ephesus, uh, to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, he says, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered hard shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Look at chapter four. By the way, um, it's crazy to think about Hymenaeus and Alexander that they were probably sitting in that elders meeting back in Acts chapter 20 when Paul called the, the elders of Ephesus, the Ephesian church together and, uh, and said, hey, just so you know, um, from among you, uh, wolves will appear. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. I believe that two of those men who heard that charge or warning from Paul were Hymenaeus and Alexander. And now he was calling them out after the fact. Chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Chapter 6, verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure what? Sound doctrine. Titus chapter 1, verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Verse 13, this testimony is true for this reason. Reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So ever since, Paul, ever since Paul's day, Satan has raised up false teachers who have subtly introduced false doctrines into the church. And these men play fast and loose with Scripture, and they teach strange things that are different from what the Bible teaches. And so consequently, they undermine the truth of God's Word and place sound doctrine in jeopardy. And if these truth robbers or poachers are not confronted and corrected, then sound doctrine is at risk of being wiped out altogether. 
And I don't think I need to tell you this, but sound doctrine is becoming an endangered species with the evangelical church today. More and more people are tuning out the truth, wanting instead to have their self-esteem bolstered or built up or their senses stimulated or their minds entertained. They want therapy rather than theology. And nowhere is that more apparent than in modern day preaching. Whereas one man said there's a trend away from expository doctrinal preaching and a movement toward an experience-centered, pragmatic, shallow, topical approach in the pulpit. Churchgoers are seen as consumers who have to be sold something they like. Pastors must preach what people want to hear rather than what God wants proclaimed. And if the church growth surveys are right, and I think they are, people don't want to listen to long doctrinal sermons anymore. They want to hear lighthearted, entertaining, uplifting talks. And so more and more preachers are, to, are, are, are deciding to give, give their people what they want. One pastor who was venting his loathing of long sermons and, and expressing his commitment to, to prepare shorter ones perfectly, albeit unwittingly, summarized the prevailing attitude of many people in the church today when he said this, quote, people will forgive bad theology as long as they get out by noon. We still got 20 minutes, okay, so just so you know. Not only are sermons being shortened, they're also being softened because preachers deliberately and intentionally avoid the controversial and confrontational elements of the Bible. And it seems like most messages today focus on solving people's problems, kind of the felt needs, the things you felt when you came in here. Like, man, pastor, I was, you didn't come in here thinking, hey, I need some sound doctrine today. Give me some theology. You're like, hey, you know what? My marriage stinks right now. Can you help me with that? Or, man, I'm really struggling with my kids and raising my kids, and, man, my finances are a wreck, and my health is this or whatever, and you're dealing with coworkers and, and bitterness and frustration here and anxiety here. And so uh, that's why these topical series are so popular. You see them on a lot of church signs. Hey, come, and we're doing a series on this topic, this subject, right? Um, that's why we don't usually put out there, hey, we're doing a series on First Peter. People drive by going, whoop-de-doo. Who cares about First Peter? I want to know what's going on in my marriage, right? Um, and so the Bible, unfortunately, becomes more like a self-help manual filled with, with practical pointers, practical tips for dealing with issues in our lives. And so as, as the preaching gets weaker, the church gets weaker. And we are part of a generation of Christians who are not only biblically illiterate, but we are suffering from spiritual malnutrition. Walt Kaiser, one of my favorite authors, uh, faithful seminary professor for years, said this, quote, it is no secret that Christ's church is not at all in good health. She has been languishing because she has been fed junk food. All kinds of artificial preservatives and all sorts of unnatural substitutes have been served up to her. As a result, theological and biblical malnutrition has afflicted the very generation that has taken such giant steps to make sure its physical health is not damaged by using foods or products that are harmful to their physical bodies. How ironic. We're way more concerned these days about what goes into our mouth, right? We should be equally, if not far more, concerned about what goes into our hearts and our minds, right? Our ears and our minds and our hearts. What's even worse, while many believers are malnourished, some are actually starving because of a lack of sound biblical instruction. Eric Alexander, who's a Scottish pastor, expositor, shared this antidote. He said, quote, I had a young student telephone me one evening from an English city where he was at university. He said, I just traveled two and a half hours by bus to the opposite side of the city. I've been here for eight weeks and have been around every church that I have been told about, which is remotely evangelical. I've heard some marvelous music. 
I've been under some remarkably scintillating talks about current issues. I've listened to dialogue. I've seen drama and dancing. I've been witness to all kinds of excellent occasions of worship. But I'm sitting back in this university dorm this evening asking, will nobody in this city feed my soul? It's one example of people, a person starving for God's word. And you know, some people don't even realize it. And because and, if all you've ever eaten is Twinkies, right? They taste fine. I like Twinkies. Nothing wrong with Twinkies, right? Okay, my wife would say there's something wrong with Twinkies. But, um, but then you get to dig into a prime rib steak and you're like, wow, that tastes good. And, and hopefully, once you get a taste of that, you realize what you've been missing and you're like, I'm done with Twinkies. So there's the jeopardy of sound doctrine. Secondly is the urgency of sound doctrine. The, the reality that there, there has always been and there will always be those who are trying to jeopardize sound doctrine and distort sound doctrine requires that we maintain an attitude of urgency regarding sound doctrine. And there are three main things about which, about which we must be urgent. The first one is protection. Protection. Again, back to the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the, what? Sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers." Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. And then look at chapter 6, uh, verse 20. Uh, o Timothy, you just get the sense of the, of the urgency here uh, in, in, uh, in, in Paul's voice to Timothy. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Again, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And then in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, talking about the qualifications of an elder, that they must be able to hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that they will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Verse 13 talks about the men needing to be silenced. This testimony is true for this reason. Reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. There are times when I feel compelled to point out certain dangerous movements within the church at large and even mention the names of pastors or authors in, in, involved in them. And I don't do that just to be critical or, or controversial. I, I don't do it to make me or our church look better as if we are the only church who's doing it right. It's not that I have a high view of myself or our church, but I have a high view of God and His Word. And I love God's Word, and it's my God-ordained duty to guard and protect it as a sacred trust. And not only do I feel a great sense of obligation to God and His Word, I also feel a great obligation to God's people. And I say the things I do because I love you and I want to protect you from eating unhealthy stuff that might make you sick. John MacArthur, in his commentary on the pastoral epistles, makes this profound statement, and I quote, 
It is the solemn responsibility of every church to solidly, immovably, unshakably uphold the truth of God's word. The church does not invent the truth and alters it only at the cost of judgment. It is to support and safeguard it. It is the sacred, saving treasure given to sinners for their forgiveness and to believers for their sanctification and edification that they might live for the glory of God. The church has the stewardship of Scripture, the duty to guard it as the most precious possession on earth. Churches that tamper with, misrepresent, depreciate, relegate to secondary place, or abandon biblical truth destroy their only reason for existing and experience impotence and judgment. So, the first thing we must be urgent about is protecting sound doctrine. Uh, Secondly, we must be urgent about precision, about precision. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 16, Paul said, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear. And then a more familiar passage is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, where Paul said, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. You've got Hymenaeus, you've got Alexander, and now you've got Philetus, who I think were formerly elders in the church at Ephesus that Paul needed to discipline and kick out because they had gone rogue. And we're teaching strange doctrines and leading the people astray. Verse 18, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. They were upsetting the the, the faith of people in the church. One of the most... One of the most favorite and feared professors at the Master's Seminary, who is now in heaven. His name was Robert Thomas. And uh, you, you, you had a love-hate relationship with this guy because, you know, you wanted to avoid his classes, if at all possible, and find somebody else who was teaching the same class because you knew it was going to be easier. Um, but there was one class you, you had to take that he was the only one that taught. It was New Testament Introduction. And he had to read a textbook that was this, like this thick, and you would, it would be a quiz every day in class. At the beginning of every class, he'd say, okay, take out a piece of paper, and he'd give us a quiz. And he would ask us questions from literally hundreds of pages of reading. And every once in a while, he'd add a question from the footnote. And so, I mean, you just walked into his class every day, fear and trepidation. You know, I'm either going to pass this or fail this. There's no in-between. And I did. I pretty much was, a, my quizzes were a wash. I, I probably f- failed as many as I passed. And uh, they kind of canceled themselves out. But this guy was all about precision. Men, you've got to know your stuff. You've got to get it right. This is serious business. In fact, this is what he said, and I'm going to quote him. He said, people don't often go heretical all at once. It's gradual. And they do not do so intentionally most of the time. They slip into it through shoddiness and laziness and handling the word of truth. All it takes to start down the road to heresy is a craving for something new and different, a flashy new idea, along with a little laziness or carelessness or lack of precision in handling the truth of God. Excuse me, handling the truth of God. He said, precision is a compelling desire to master the truth of God. In more definitive terms, to facilitate a more accurate presentation of that truth to others and to safeguard against doctrinal slippage that leads to error and false doctrine. He goes on. He says, everyone will not appreciate precision and willingly assent to its importance. It takes a lot of patience and thick skin to put up with the criticism and outright opposition that will come when God's servant insists on accuracy. 
rough estimates as to what this or that passage means will not do. We need qualified expositors who will take the time and make the necessary sacrifices to do their homework well and bring clarity to the minds of God's people as they read and study God's holy word. Amen? That guy was in the right line of work, training expositors to be precise. Thirdly, we need to be urgent about proclamation. We need to be urgent about proclamation. Notice 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Here it is. Teach and preach these principles. And then, of course, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped for every, adequate equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And then Titus chapter 2 verse 1, but as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. You've heard me quote from David Eby in the past. He wrote a doctrinal dissertation called Power Preaching for Church Growth, and it was years ago during the church growth movement um, where there was all these manuals and books and of what you have to do to get your church to grow. Uh, this is the secret. And he said, how about preaching? How about preaching? That's God's way of church growth. And so this is what he said. What's the preacher to do in an age of fluff preaching? psychologized content, self-helpism, feel-good messages, and biblical illiteracy, you resist and fight. You stand against the trend. You swim against the tide. You go to battle for biblical content and biblical truth. You refuse to be reluctant to preach doctrine. You decline to be an ear tickler. You revolt against the tendency to downplay doctrine. You rebel against anemic, watered-down exposition. You know that people can't survive spiritually on gruel, so you labor hard to prepare well-balanced, high-calorie, high-protein meals that will feed the soul. He says your ultimate concern is not what people say or what they think. You don't care what the climate of the market is or what people say they want. You have a higher calling than felt needs sermonizing that aims at satisfying the customer. Your call is to please the creator of heaven and earth, the Lord of hosts. Your summons is to faithful stewardship. Your vocation is to declare and teach the powerful content of the whole counsel of God. The Bible calls you to preach sound, solid, firm, beautiful content, content that people must have to live before a holy God, truth that people need for the road, no concessions, no negotiations, no politicking, just straight, 100%, pure, genuine, 16 ounces to the pound, biblical truth, that's what you must proclaim. Now he's talking like a Texan. When you start talking about sizes of steaks, right, six ounce right, 10 ounce, 12 ounce, he's talking about 16 ounces to the pound, biblical truth, that's what you need to present to your people. So we need to be urgent about these things, but then finally, there's, there's the beauty of sound doctrine. There, there's the beauty of sound doctrine. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, right in the heart of this opening appeal to Timothy to remain on at Ephesus and to teach certain men not to teach strange doctrine. He says this, verse 5, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In other words, the, the goal of sound doctrine is just, just not so that we can say we're right and everyone else is wrong. It's not so that we can sit around pridefully patting ourselves on the back as the only ones that got it right, that we know everything, that we're the know-it-alls. Just, not just to fill our heads with a bunch of knowledge. It's, it's that we could apply that doctrine that we know to our lives so it changes the way we live and we become more loving 
and we become more pure and holy. We become more sincere in our faith and that we maintain a, 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 a more clear conscience. Look at um, Titus chapter 2. I already read verse 1, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. But then notice how Paul goes on here to list the characteristics of sound doctrine. In other words, what, what does sound doctrine look like fleshed out in the life of a church? Well, older men, verse 2, are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith and love and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor a slave to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine, dignified sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Starts to sound like First Peter here a little bit. Uh, verse 9, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. That's the key phrase there, that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. That word adorn is the word cosmeo in the Greek, which is where we get our English word cosmetics. And ladies, you know especially what those are all for, right? Uh, Cosmetics, we use them to make ourselves more physically attractive. In fact, in ancient times, the word was also used to describe how jewels were arranged in in such a way to set off their their beauty, and like a piece of jewelry, for example. And so what Paul is implying here is that sound doctrine produces strong, stable, healthy, spiritually mature people whose lives are characterized by these qualities. And, and, these, and, and when these qualities are, are present in our lives as a body of, of believers, we make Christianity attractive to others. When we live out the things that we've been taught from God's word, those who don't know Christ will notice and it may lead them to salvation in Christ. Again, we just learned this from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the thing which they slander you as evildoers they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. So sound doctrine produces or results in sound living. And so sound doctrine is really the foundation on which we build a strong, healthy, mature church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastor teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So what does it look like when we're mature in Christ? As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. A little over 100 years ago, C.H. Spurgeon, who is referred to as the Prince of Preachers, was deeply concerned that the church in his day was drifting away from sound doctrine, and that some of his fellow pastors were compromising God's word, they were experimenting with alternative approaches to preaching, abbreviated messages, and so he believed that the church's tolerance for Uh, preaching was beginning to decline, which put the church in grave danger, and so he felt compelled to stand up boldly against what he termed as the downgrade. And so he confronted his fellow pastors. He said, everywhere is apathy. Nobody cares whether that what is preached is true or false. The sermon is a sermon, whatever the subject, only the shorter it is, the better. And then he used this parable to confront his fellow pastors. 
He said, in the days of Nero, there was a great shortage of food in the city of Rome, although there was an abundance of corn to be purchased at Alexandria. A certain man who owned a vessel went down to the seacoast, and there he noticed many hungry people straining their eyes towards the sea, watching for the vessels that were to come from Alexandria with corn. When these vessels came to shore one by one, the poor people wrung their hands in bitter disappointment, for on board the galleys was nothing but sand, which the tyrant emperor Nero had compelled them to bring for use in the arena. It was infamous cruelty when men were dying of hunger to command trading vessels to go to and fro and bring nothing else but sand for the gladiator shows when corn was so greatly needed. Then the merchant whose vessel was moored by the wharf said to his shipmaster, take thou good heed and thou bring nothing back with thee from Alexandria but corn for these people are dying and now we must keep our vessels for this one business of bringing food for them. And Spurgeon went on to say, as if they could have missed the point, alas, I have seen certain mighty galleys of late loaded with nothing but mere sand of philosophy and speculation, and I have said myself, nay, but I will bear nothing in my ship but the revealed truth of God, the bread of life so greatly needed by the people. I share Spurgeon's commitment to you to provide you with what you need most, and that is the bread of life. And to always and only use this pulpit to faithfully deliver the truth of God's word so that you might become strong, healthy, mature in your walk with Christ so you could bring honor and glory to God and God can use you to bring many others to Christ through your beautiful, godly life. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this helpful reminder, while albeit strong, of the priority of sound doctrine in the life of this church and really every church. Um, thank you for the relationship that Paul had with Timothy and Titus, which lend itself to this kind of frank conversation that we can benefit from. And so, Lord, would you be gracious to us as a church? Would you be gracious to me as a pastor and all our pastors and all of our elders, Lord, that we would never compromise uh, your truth, but that we would stay faithful uh, to preach and teach sound doctrine that lines up with what the Bible, what you've said uh, in the Bible um, Lord, that we would always simply be repeating your words rather than, ma- that, rather than making up our own. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.